Welcome to Follow the Money Ball at the intersection of sports and money with a healthy dose of funny and irreverence too. Here's your host, David Sloan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Follow the Money Ball with David Sloan. My guest today is Bob Nightingale. Bob is the head baseball writer at USA Today for many years, and I am very pleased to have him on my show today. Hello, Bob. Hey, David. Glad to be here. Thank you very much for joining me today. You know, I always feel that it's best to uh, start a story at the beginning. And in addition to that, I've always been a fan of origin stories. So I'd like to go back to the beginning for you. Um, You grew up where? Well, my dad was in the Air Force, so we moved every three, four years. So primarily west and midwest, but never at a place more than four years. Never lived in a, uh, a baseball city. There's always military bases. So uh-huh. never a, uh, a major say at all. Closest was uh, at the Air Force Academy, you know, which is just an hour short, uh, shy of uh, Denver. Right. Very beautiful there. I would assume that your interest in sports developed uh, the way it did for, for many of us. And that was uh, as a young man, you played sports. Yeah, I did. And uh, yeah, I was, was always baseball your favorite. No, not particularly. I liked them all. Uh, you know, baseball might have been at the beginning, but I, I played, you know, whatever was in season. Uh, my grandparents lived in uh, Passaic, New Jersey, so we'd always go out there every summer. He would take me to uh, Yankee games, take me to the horse tracks when he visited. And uh, so he really got me in sports uh, as well. So baseball wasn't necessarily your best sport. Was it your favorite one? Yeah, it was one of my favorites. I, mean, I remember, uh, you know, studying the batting averages and stuff, you know, looking forward to the Sunday paper when you could uh, read who's leading the league and everything else. You know, they never had. You know, batting averages in the paper, except for Sunday. So you always look forward to that Sunday paper and see who is, uh, who's actually leading the league. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I was kind of a, uh, a Yankee fan just because of my grandparents. Well, um, interesting. I, I had a similar experience. I always read the papers here and watched the box scores. And growing up in South Florida, there, there was no major league team back then. So it was whatever team you were able to get on the radio. And down here, uh, that was either the Braves when they after they moved to Atlanta or the Yankees because this was such a, a big New York market. Market. And also the Yankees back then had their spring training in Fort Lauderdale, which was, you know, not too far from where I grew up in Hollywood, Florida. And actually they had their minor league spring training uh, in Hollywood. So I used to go over and watch them. So uh, that was always interesting to see. So now, so you grew up all over the place and, and followed uh, sports all over the place. And then I understand that you went to a really good college. That was uh, probably a great experience for you having uh, the opportunity to become a Sun Devil, correct? Yeah, the Harbor of the West, Arizona State. <laughs> the Southwest, exactly. Yes, yes, no, no question about it. I, I know personally, having gone there as well, it was certainly the best job I ever had. Uh, it was a, a little easy to get distracted at times, especially during the spring. Uh, but uh, it was a great place to go to school. That was for sure. There was a lot of things to do and a lot of opportunities as well. Now, w- was your major in college journalism? It was. It was. Did a little. Uh, I started getting interested in journalism maybe around my junior year in high school work for the uh, high school newspaper and say, you know what, uh, it'd be fun to become a sports writer. And uh, yeah. I was interested in all sports. It wasn't just baseball. It could have been, you know, covering the NFL or NBA, uh, what have you, colleges. But yeah, so in high school, I said, you know what, I think I would like to be a sports writer. So that's what led me. Uh, I might have gone to University of Colorado, but they didn't have a journalism program. And so I so said, you know what, I went to ASU. My parents used to always come down for spring tra- uh, spring break, uh, always enjoyed it. And uh, that was a you know, fun school, a good school, a, you know, a great melting pot. You know, it's just 
so much diversity at the college. I, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. No question about it. I, I know from my experience, I met kids from literally all walks of life. And my my best friend, much like yourself, was a uh, Air Force brat and lived in Arlington, Virginia, El Paso, Germany, and Seattle and half a dozen other places. So um, where is it? Where were you in high school primarily? Did you move the years that you were in high school as well? Uh, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My dad okay. uh, got stationed there after a Vietnam tour and then, okay. uh, and then moved to Denver, just my senior year only. And okay. uh, then he ended up retiring from the Air Force and working government and everything else. But my two younger sisters followed me to ASU. But, oh, okay. uh, but yeah, they were much more entrenched in Denver than I was. And of course, went back to Denver every summer for uh, summer break. I understand. So you had Arizona surrounded um, uh, there in New Mexico and Colorado. So you knew it at least a little bit before you got there. That's great. That's great. And and the journalism school there is a very, very good journalism school. I, I have to say you are uh, part of a very small group of people that I know who actually majored in what their career eventually wound up being in. Uh, my wife being one of them. My wife was a uh, uh, majored in uh, radio and broadcasting, and that is what she went into. Uh, most people that I know of, they majored in whatever it was, and then when they got out of school, they went into whatever their career became. I know, uh, speaking for myself, I majored in political science at Arizona State, and what I wound up doing as an agent for 44 years had absolutely nothing to do with political science. Although um, the, a lot of the skills from politics did kind of dovetail with uh, the skills necessary to be an agent. So you went to ASU and majored in journalism. You come out of ASU with your degree. And where was your first uh, newspaper job? Uh, right at the uh, local paper, the Arizona Republic in, in Phoenix. Okay. Uh, you know, doing uh, you know high schools, taking high school scores, uh, moving my way up there, mentioning ASU uh, football. And, uh, but yeah, that was my first job, uh, right out of college. Was Tim uh, Tyre still there or Vern Boatner? Vern was the uh, columnist at the Arizona Republic. Tim Tyres was the uh, columnist for the uh, Phoenix Gazette. Uh But yeah, Vern Boatner was uh, was certainly there. And then uh, took off from there and went to uh, Kansas City Star to cover the uh, Kansas City Royals. What year was that? So first year coming around, I helped out in 85 with Tracy Ringlesby uh, in the World Series and playoffs. But covering baseball on a full-time beat, was 1986. And uh, a great team to, to be with just because a small market team and those guys, you know, taught me everything. Every, you know, uh, Al McRae, uh, Frank White, uh, uh, George Brett, you know, Dan Quisenberry, you know, on and on. But just a, uh, a great group of veteran guys to learn with. And with younger guys, too, that, come, you know, that came up about the, you know, uh, Brett Saber again, and Mark Ubisaw, you know, those sort of guys too, with Danny Tarr, Willie Wilson, and yeah, to hang out with them. Willie Wilson was more of the veteran type, yeah. So, so yeah, those days were different. I mean, took team planes uh, occasionally, hung out at the hotel bars and different bars, and ate together all the time. Right, right. And that organization, they were, I would assume, pretty friendly as far as the media was concerned, as opposed to. Some of the other organizations that tend to see the media in an adversarial relationship with the team. Yeah, it's almost like everybody's together. You know, the uh, I remember on opening day was a big thing in Kansas City, like it is a lot of smaller markets. But John Sherholz, the general manager, was actually in the street corners passing out, you know, the Kansas City Star newspaper. You know, just times were different back then. But yeah, yes. it was very, very close knit. 
my my first experience with John Sherholtz, he was the assistant minor league director for the Royals. Lou Gorman was running their minor league department back then. I can't remember the the name of the GM, but nonetheless, Gorman was running their minor league department. And I was representing their second round draft choice in 1975, a kid from Arizona by the name of Pat Gilly. Um, he wound up not signing and he wound up going to ASU and had some injury problems and his career never worked out. But he was the uh, the best uh, prospect in the state of Arizona that year. The second best prospect was a guy you might have heard of who had a fairly decent major league career, Bobby Horner. Um, sure. But Pat Gilly was the the top guy that year. And it was kind of a, a farce because back then um, players were not supposed to have agents. And nonetheless, there were many players that did have agents and, and Pat was one of them. And it got to the point where it was a week or 10 days before ASU was going to start and the Royals would lose the uh, rights to Pat. And Lou Gorman calls me up and he's got Sherholtz on the extension. He says, David, you know, we talked about, you know, what you were looking for for your client. He said, but uh, we haven't received anything from you yet. Could you, you know, send us a memo as to exactly, you know, the signing bonus, incentive bonus and college money that you're looking for for your client? Said, oh, sure. I'll put it in the mail right away, Lou. No problem whatsoever. They were trying to, you know, get me to implicate my client in terms of having an agent. So needless to say, that letter <laughs> never got sent. But nonetheless, you know, as as you know, Sherholtz went on to bigger and better things with both the Royals and then obviously with the Braves. So uh, yeah, he was destined for success. He he managed to climb that corporate ladder pretty quickly. So so you were with the Royals for uh, covering the Royals for how many years? So uh, so yeah, I started full time '86 and uh, covered the Royals, then left in uh, June of '89 to the uh, Los Angeles Times to go cover the uh, San Diego Padres. I didn't know you'd work with the Times. Yeah, so cover the Padres for the Times, the Angels for the Times, and the Dodgers for the Times before going to uh, USA Today. The Padres are a fun team, too. Just a small market, Tony Gwynn and and those guys. So same thing. Uh, Real fun group to be around. Yeah, Randy Jones and, and, um, oh, God, I'm trying to remember. What was the name of the catcher? Yeah, I missed him. I had, uh, yeah, Cliff, Greg Lefferts, Gary Templeton, uh, and of course, when I was there, Fred McGriff came in, Gary Sheffield came in. So yeah, some very, very good uh, players. Gary, if I'm not starting, I'm not the part in Templeton. <laughs> yeah, you, you remember guy. that? You remember yeah, that? Huh? Roberts yeah. is there. Yeah, yeah. I, I I tried to recruit Gary. Um, tried very hard. He had played against one of my roommates from ASU in the Texas League, and that particular gentleman, Gary Atwell, who started in center field for four years at ASU said flat out, this is the single best athlete I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, Gary was a number one football recruit for ASU that year. Oh, I didn't know, know that. that. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was arguably the best wide receiver prospect in the state of California his senior year in high school in Santa Ana, which, you wow. know, he was a very fast runner and a, and a great athlete. So obviously that would make sense that he would have those kind of skills. But, uh, you know, when the Cardinals drafted him in the first round and offered him some money, his family had a really difficult situation. His father, they were from Ohio, I think Akron, and his father had worked for B.F. Goodrich for many, many years. And it was just before he was supposed to have his pension vested and, you know, he was going to retire with full pension and they laid him off. So he didn't get that pension money and it really set his family back. And then shortly after that, Gary moved to uh, to California. And again, as they say, the rest is history. 
So you're with the Times, which had to be a, a, an interesting experience. I mean, a, a giant city newspaper like that. And they had a, a back then, uh, I'm sure, an extensive staff of writers, some of whom no doubt are, are still uh, around these days. And um, that must have been a tremendous learning experience. So you, uh, Tracy Ringlesby, I knew Tracy from when he worked for the Long Beach Press-Telegram. Uh, yeah, yeah covering the angels and i had several clients on the angels back then very nice man very good writer would you say that in those years either in kansas city with the star or in los angeles with the times that you had anyone who might uh, be described as a mentor or with any anywhere else any other people that you knew that you would describe necessarily as a mentor uh certainly tracy uh he, he's number one by far he's going to talk me in uh, covering baseball with him and really? uh yeah, taught me how to well, do how did that. Sto- how did that conversation go? You you were just you were writing for a paper or or what? You you were undecided yeah, as to which uh, way you were going to go. Yeah, I went to Kansas City. I was doing some college football. I was doing an MBA for that year. Uh, it was fun, and uh, I didn't say lost touch with baseball, but that wasn't you know comfortable. And uh, he said, "No, you'll like it. The people in the game are great. Treat people with respect. I'll treat your respect back." And uh, you know, sure enough, after a few months. I learned to uh, you know, love the people in the game and what it was all about, and it never stopped. But, yeah, Tracy taught me the work ethic and everything else uh, to do the job the way it's supposed to be, and I still follow that to this day. I mean, still, if I'm at the first guy at the ballpark, you know, one of the first, and when the clubhouse is open, I'm, I'm in there. But all that, you know, keeping stats, it's all I'll do to Tracy Ringlesby. Interesting, interesting. Well, and that's very much an old school approach now. Would you not agree? It would seem that a lot of the younger writers tend to, my impression of it, and, and please correct me if you disagree, my impression of it is that a lot of the newer writers seem to rely extensively on what they're reading online and reacting to that. Um, it's, it's a very similar shift that I perceive that took place in baseball front offices where, uh, you know, back in the day they relied on what they saw with their eyes and now they rely, uh, what they see on a stat sheet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much, uh, people looking at stats and numbers, which is amazing because there's so many people that don't even keep scoring more in the press box, which blows my Seriously? mind. Seriously? Yeah. And just do, you know, look at the computer and say, okay, this guy did this since previous at bat. But it's, uh, it's wild. But yeah, so much is done with stats. They don't get to know a person. Uh, I know it's harder to get to know people today. You're not drinking the hotel bar with them. But still, so many people don't know, you know, the human side or what, you know, what makes a guy tick. Why is this guy great in the clutch? Why this guy is great when doesn't, when there's no pressure, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that's missing where before you really get to know a, uh, a guy's personality. And uh, like I said, hang out with him and just you know, know what makes him tick. Where now people just look at numbers and sure numbers only. Well, would you not agree that the sports business more or less has always been the relationship business? Because it's it's who you know and how you know them and, you know, in what depth that you know them. So that, as you say, you know a, a, a bit of the guy's background and, and can ascertain from that what it is that makes it easier for him to function in pressure situations. Or, you know, you, you know somebody well enough that uh, uh, maybe in, in course of a conversation, they let you in on the fact that they're having some sort of, you know, their their father's sick or, or you know, their wife's expecting or something like that. And that's on their mind when they go up to the plate. Yeah, absolutely. That's going through marital, marital problems or what have you. 
like you said, you know, sick uh, sick kids or something like that. But yeah, 19 guys missing where everything just uh, is straight on the uh, analytics side and how a guy performs are going strictly by the numbers and not what a guy does or what he means to a team winning. You know, there's debate, you remember a year ago, who's the MVP, Aaron Judge or Shohei Otani? So, I mean, Aaron Judge led his team to playoffs, obviously broke a home run, the home run record. But you look at now, I mean, look at the Yankees without Aaron Judge. And right now they're 20 and 27 when he doesn't play. That, that's an MVP. I mean, he makes those guys a playoff team when he plays. When he doesn't play, they, they stink. So to me, that's what the most viable player is. Well, whereas Otani until recently has been healthy the entire years and the Angels still aren't uh, a great team, even with him and Trout. Right, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's no knock on Otani. He's a great player. There's no question about it. He's a great player. But using the the benchmark that you're talking about uh, in terms of the Yankees with Judge as opposed to the Yankees without Judge versus the Angels with Otani and, and they're not, you know, anywhere near uh, the Yankees with Aaron Judge. Yeah, it should just be about the numbers. You know, going back, you remember this, David, the uh, 88. Uh, Daryl Strawberry had easily the best numbers of anybody in the National League. Kurt Gibson won the MVP award because of what he meant to that franchise, uh, lifting one of the top. Uh, same with Terry Pendleton when he got the Braves in the playoffs in 91. You know, Bonds had much better numbers, but Pendleton was a, was a difference maker for that team. So now it seems like people ignore that. Yes, yes. It's it's a lot more of, you know, what's this pitcher's spin rate? What's this hitter's exit velocities and, and those sorts of things? And they tend to, in my opinion, focus on those as main issue as opposed to a, an adjunct, a tool in order to analyze what makes a player great. Because there are so many other things that make a player great other than spin rate exit velocity, things like that. There's also intangibles, and and Gibson's a great example of that. I mean, the guy had tools coming out his ears, but nonetheless, in in my opinion, and and again, I I was fortunate enough to see Kirk Gibson play in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, against a client of mine there that I went to visit, and and they were playing, I believe it was the Evansville team, was the Detroit Farm Club back then. And the thing that made Gibson the great player that he was, was the fact that he just refused to lose. He would do whatever it took to win a game. If it was coming up with a big hit that he would do it. If it was stealing a base, he would do it. If it was a defensive play, he would do it. He would do whatever it took to win a game. And and there may have been people with greater exit velocity or what have you than he had, but nobody had a, a, a stronger desire to win than Kirk Gibson in, in that era. Maybe there's somebody out there today, but uh, in that era, Gibson to me was head and shoulders pretty much above almost anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see it, you know, different guys now, whether it's a, uh, a Kyle Schwarber, you know, type of player in, in Philadelphia and those, those guys that will just do anything possible to win, forget the stats and I think that's you why know, so I'm so happy with the, uh, particularly Fred McGriff going to the Hall of Fame, you know, this weekend, Scott Rowland too, but they were gamers. I mean, it was about helping your team win. It wasn't saying, okay, look, you know, look at me, look at me, and say, right. what can I do to help my team win that night? Right, right, 100%. And and those are both guys that, that had tremendous respect from other players that were uh, their peers as well, in addition to putting up great numbers and also in the, in the respective clubhouses that they, uh, that they played in. Bob, you've, you've been uh, in the game for a, a long time and seen a lot of changes. What would you characterize as the, the biggest challenge 
going forward in terms of that that baseball has to to face and and I would break that down um, into the challenge from the the sport side and the challenge from the player side. I have my opinions and and you know I'll be glad to share those, but I'd really like to hear yours. Well, the sports side, I just like to get back to where it was for you know scouting and development. And not just sheer numbers. I mean, you can't just throw numbers on a, on a piece of paper. All you have to do is look at the San Diego Padres. Well, I think if they don't make the playoffs, we go down as the most underachieving baseball team of all time. But you just can't throw a bunch of talent in a room, expect them to win without constructing the roster right, having a deep bench, that sort of thing. And I think way too often, you know, we all get caught up, you know, talking about writers and uh, media and who wins the winner. I mean, how many times does a team win the winter and just, you know, stinks in the summer? You know, yep. we fall in love with that. Uh, you know, you know everybody gets so excited about all the money the Mets are spending, the Padres are spending, Yankees, you know, look look where they are right now. The season, you know, season ends, they're not in the playoffs, but yet three or four of the bottom teams in uh, revenue and payroll will be in the playoffs. But, but I think, you know, what, what we're missing or ignoring is just heart and desire, what makes a guy tick. I would say from from my perspective, the most important thing from a, the team's point of view is you have to assemble a player development factory. One of my former clients is a gentleman by the name of Mitch Lukovics, and I, I was supposed to actually interview Mitch last week, but something came up and, and he couldn't make it the day we were going to get together. And then uh, his anniversary, evidently uh, he and his wife are taking a trip for their anniversary. So I'll probably be talking to Mitch next week. But one of the things that I, you know, am most interested in talking to Mitch about was the fact that he's been a huge, huge factor and, and a very unknown factor in regard to the player development factory that the Tampa Bay Rays have assembled. And before that, uh, he got his start in player development with the Yankees. I represented Mitch when he was with the White Sox. And uh, Mitch got up to AAA as a, as a pitcher out of Penn State. You know, he was just a little bit short. You know, in those days, there were no uh, radar guns. So he probably would have been high 80s regularly, low 90s, maybe top out around 91, 92. But in terms of player development, he's been one of the best. And And to me, what you're talking about is exactly that in terms of the teams winning the winter. Yeah, you can sign Verlander, you can sign Scherzer, you can sign this guy or that guy or trade for somebody else that a team's trying to dump their salary. But if you've got a a Wander Franco uh, coming up from the minor leagues who you know is a great talent and you're able to work him into your lineup and he contributes every day in the big leagues the same way that he had in the minors, that's of tremendous benefit to you on on two tracks. One, he's putting up great numbers for you on the field. And number two, he's saving you money because you're not having to pay him the same amount of money that, for example, Philadelphia is paying Trey Turner to have signed him as a free agent. So it's a double benefit when you have that kind of player pipeline that your own organization has developed. Would you not agree? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Dodgers have, you know, Dodgers have big payroll. But they've done a great job uh, developing, great job. Maybe they use you know, one of those resources to help those young guys come up. You know, Tampa does a wonderful job just in the, the makeup and character of players. I mean, how many players they bring in who were nothing until they got there to become all-stars, and how many all-stars leave that became nothing once they once it apart? I mean, just a magical formula there. And you talk to players, they're almost in tears when they get traded or leave Tampa because they enjoy it so much, just the, the environment, 
how comfortable they are, a close-knit organization. Uh, you know, you know, there's a few other examples, but you know, a guy like David Price is really one of the few guys that leaves Tampa and they're still good. It seems like right. everybody else is going to fall apart. Yeah, they do a great job there, and they have for for most of their existence. Once, uh, what was the guy's name? Vince Namoli. Once he sold the team, it seemed to to really take off. And and uh, again, I uh, take a little bit of pride in in the fact that one of my former clients is. Uh, directly involved in in the success that they've had in in developing the the many players that they've had. So so tell me something in terms of covering uh, as you do on a national basis. How important is it to maintain access, not just to players, but also the major league uh, executives and also to uh, player agents? And specifically, what I'm talking about is is there a a barrier, let's call it, to you, um, you know, you, you see a team like San Diego and you know, they they sign a guy like Tatis for, for you know, a big, big deal like the one he got. And, um, you know, you look at it and, and you say, well, yeah, that's a great deal if it works out. But if it doesn't work out, you guys are screwed for the next 13 years or what have you. Um, is Is there a barrier to you being able to say that for fear that by saying it, you you lose access to AJ Preller or the people in the San Diego front office. I think it's more, much more prevalent today than it's ever been. Uh, I think you look at the uh, me in general. Me in general is much softer for the reasons you said, David. In that, you know, you start burying someone, you're not going to have the access. So instead of you being the only game in town, they all turn to uh, competition, and you know. I'll give everything to that guy because he's not critical of me. So I think we see that uh, an awful lot. Uh, you know, I think outside outside Boston, a little bit of Philadelphia, you know, I think, you know, the rest of the markets are just uh, not saying they're all cheering for their team, but, you know, they're not critical either. And I think the problem, too, is in today's media age, and everything goes by, you know, clicks. So how many times the story reading? So yes. it's almost you find the beat writers almost rooting for their teams because people are going to read about a winner much more than a loser. And uh, we've seen layoffs, you know, New York Times shutting down their sports section, yeah. things like yeah. that. It's just, you know, a scary thing. But, you know, I, I don't blame these uh, particularly beat writers for rooting for their team to win because more, more people are going to read their stories. Yeah. Do you think that management has become more thin-skinned or, or could it be the fact that they're, for, for example, when you were with the, the Times covering the Dodgers, Angels, and Padres, you were the only game in town. It wasn't like Buzzy Bavese when he was with the Padres being able to go to a outlet like, for example, The Athletic or Barstool Sports or Deadspin or one of these online uh, publications and, and get his story out that way. He either had to give the story to you or to the San Diego paper, basically. There was no one else that that, you know, provided an outlet, but now there's 9 million different, uh, I mean, even people like me with nothing but a microphone uh, can criticize a deal as opposed to, you know, the actual newspaper that covers the the various teams. Yeah. When you see that the MLB network, you know, uh, MLB radio, uh, you know, newspapers, but everybody is just kind of uh, uh, much softer just to get that access. And if you're burying someone, say you're MLB network, you're not going to get that guy to ever come on uh, on the air and uh, do anything for you. So, yeah, it was different back, uh, you know, like the L.A. Times, particularly was covering the Angels and Dodgers. There were like seven or eight different papers covering it, 
but the times was so huge and circulation and everything else. It was like, you know, the only game in town as far as that people cared about, as far as the front office, like, okay, if the times, uh, is, is positive and so does everybody else. I don't care about the times. If the times is negative and everybody else is positive, they're upset with the times, but it's more to get back in the good graces. Like, okay, I'm not going to hold a grudge because that paper is too you know, powerful of a voice. You know, probably a little bit like the Chicago Tribune or New York, you know, New York Post now, you know, that sort of thing. But there's very few papers now that still have late deadlines that, you know, care about, you know, getting scores in and that, you know, do it right, frankly. But even print the box scores. I mean, right. here locally, the, the newspapers here that cover the Marlins, first of all, Marlins hardly ever get a front page story. Uh, right now, today, I mean, the Fort Lauderdale paper, the front page story is all about Lionel Messi and the Dolphins. And the Marlins are actually in the hunt for a, a playoff spot for one of the few times in recent history. And the, the closest they're going to get is page two or three. And, and I know back back in the 70s or 80s, for example, I had half a dozen clients on the, on the Angels. And the difference between a story in the Times or a story in the Orange County Register was night and day. The, the, the ball club, the front office was much more concerned with what the Times was printing as opposed to the Orange County Register, even though there's a case to be made that the Orange County Register was the, the hometown paper. And then, you know, you had the Long Beach paper as well, but the Long Beach paper and the Orange County paper didn't amount to the amount of emphasis that was placed on what the, the Times was writing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, same as when, when I was there. Uh, you know, the Times just announced, you know, no more game stories, no more box scores, nothing. They had three o'clock deadlines. Uh, the St. Pete paper, they told me uh, at the All-Star game, they only publish two days a week now. But, yeah, we're getting more and more like that. Uh, That's horrible. Yeah, there's only a few, less than a handful of papers. They can still get, you know, game stories in the paper, box scores, uh, you know, regular game stories with quotes. And everybody else is just writing a day ahead. And you pick up the paper, there's nothing in there. Yeah. True. Well, down here again, the Miami Herald, they only publish six days a week. They don't publish on Saturday. And what used to be the best paper in the state of Florida is now it's a pamphlet. It's like something that you would see for uh, uh, not a high school paper. It's a little bit beyond that, but more like the uh, the Arizona State Press. You remember that back at ASU? It's it's a little bit more extensive than the Arizona State Press. How about the players? Do do you? I mean, obviously you've you've seen some change. I know I saw it from my side as an agent. Do you think the players are more thin skinned in terms of if you if you write something critical of them that they may not talk to you again? Yeah, much more thin skinned. I'm not saying won't talk to you again, but much more thin skinned than ever. Uh, I think players all the way up through management, uh, just a different world. And uh, it's almost like, you know, hey, if you don't do that, I can go on social media, uh, express myself, I'll, I'll go uh, some other website, you know, tell radio station, what have you. But no, I think before, I think the players, you know, took it. They, they may not have liked it, but hey, you know, no grudge. Everybody's got a job to do. But now it's a different animal because when someone's negative or critical, it just jumps out so much because you don't see it anywhere. Yes, no question about it. And, 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 I don't think there were many players back in the day that ever really liked it. There were a few that were really good with the press, but most of them, I know from experience with, with most of my clients, their opinion was that the average sports writer was more interested in writing a negative story about them because it got more notice for the writer as opposed to writing a positive story about a particular player. 
do you think the prevailing sentiment still, or or do you think things have changed? I still think the uh, that negativity sells, or just you know one negative thing. You know, you could have uh, a manager praising a player for thirty minutes nonstop. He says one negative word about the guy. And that's the headline, you know, and people are clicking onto the story and things like that. Where before, I think it, it might have been a whole negative story. Now, it just, you know, one little negative thing, one little controversial thing, you know, blows up. You know, someone uh, blows up a kid for an autograph, there's a little exchange. You know, that's become, you know, huge headlines. So, you know, maybe that's why, you know, a lot of these players don't even go out anymore. I mean, they go straight back to their room, play video games, everything else. Uh, I hardly ever see any players out uh, these days. But no, it's it's just it's different. I mean, the only thing that goes on the internet now is if something you know ninety five percent of it is something negative, not not a feel good story. Yeah. Do you think that uh, that at least in part it's because of the massively increased amount of money in the game these days in terms of what the players are making versus what it was say ten twenty years ago? I'm not sure about that. Even though the the money is so much greater now, you know, even then, when, you know, oh man, this guy's making a hundred thousand, you know, you know, this guy's making a million dollars. He still jumped out just because it was so much more than the, uh, you know, average uh, income. I mean, nowadays I think you almost become immune to it. The guy's making, you know, $15 million a year. You know, it's like he's making 45 a year. It's like no yeah. difference. So yeah. I, I don't think the money part, you know, the, the, Big contracts, you know, the long-term contracts kind of play a factor, but not how much a guy is making per year. Well, I, I another thing that I've taken note of, particularly over the last, I'd say, three to five years, I had clients back in the day in the late 70s, for example, guys that, that were hitting well over 300 in the Pacific Coast League could not sniff the big leagues or a pitcher that, you know, consistently put up great numbers in the American Association couldn't sniff the big leagues. Now you got guys that are being called up from the minors who, you know, they're saying, oh, this guy hit 270 in AAA. I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm thinking in 1980, this guy wouldn't have ever seen a big league game unless he bought a ticket or one of his former teammates left him a ticket. It, it's, it's just mind boggling. Now, that being said, many of these players, they get to the big leagues and they perform well, but it's just that aspect of the game has changed so much as well. Would you agree? No, absolutely. I mean, they're bringing guys up all the time that aren't, aren't ready or even close to ready. Uh, remember that kid a couple of years ago, David, a Pittsburgh Pirates first baseman. I think Javi Baez, you know, hit a ground ball to first, and he's trying to tag him out instead of just, you know, touching the first base bag. So right. Baez gets green toward home. The guy from third base, you know, scores a run. The guy's so flustered that, you know, Baez still gets a base hit runs, but just – you see way too many of that thing, too much of that where guys don't know the fundamentals because they're getting rushed. And, uh, you know, teams just, you know, use that waiver wire or, you know, option guys right and left. And you yeah. have a, uh, you know, a couple of bad games, you're back in the minors. Hey, you pitch yeah. great relief. Uh, we can't use you because you threw five innings. You're down the minors. Right. As opposed to guys like, you remember Randy Bass or, or Steve Balboni, you know, who had, you know, half a dozen great years in AAA and didn't get called up. And when he finally got called up, he was, you know, 28, 29, 30 years old and, you know, still had a few decent years in the big leagues. Whereas nowadays, a guy like Randy Bass, who I believe had a whole bunch of years where he hit 25, 30 home runs in the minors, they're they're calling him up in a heartbeat and seeing what he can do in the big league. Yeah, I'm a, I cover Balboni with the Royals. So Al McRae, he, he was the best team leader I've ever seen. So he would give a ball of dumb period on to whoever struck out a hundred times in a season. 
and uh, you know, almost you know, just to kind of rub them, but in a good natured way. And Balbonia was always, you know, like, okay, it happened. And if it didn't happen, it's going to happen. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen in mid to late September or not at all. You know, nowadays, these guys have 100 strikeouts by the end of May. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No question about it. Um, in terms of challenges for the game going forward, how big a factor do you see gambling being? Because to me, the hypocrisy of baseball continuing to ban Pete Rose while they're getting paid by FanDuel is just as stark a contrast as I think it's possible to see. And um, I don't see it being a situation where it's going to compromise necessarily the integrity of the game, but there's so much going on now where fans are able to watch a game and and practically literally bet on whether the next pitch is a curveball or or a fastball. And, And that being said, it has to influence not necessarily outcomes, but the way that the game is is viewed by the fans as uh, something to bet on as opposed to a team to root for. Yeah, I think it opens up a Pandora's box for sure. And we've already seen, what, four or five, uh, you know, scandals in the NFL with players, you know, betting on football games. Uh, we haven't seen it yet in baseball, but it's common. Uh, whether it's, you know, you know the, hey, the clubhouse attendants know so much information, the trainers and on and on, there's going to be some uh, scandals in baseball over that kind of stuff. And you're right about, you know, it just, you know, hey, guys, are pretty soon are going to start getting death threats. Uh, players associations worried about that. Uh, that's why the umpires say, you know what, if you want to bring an automated strike zone, that's fine. I don't want uh, I don't want people calling my home because I missed a crucial call in the ninth inning and they think I'm going to take or something when yeah. I simply, I, you know, miss the pitch. It's like, okay, let let baseball handle that strike zone. Yeah, yeah, it might be a lousy umpire, but that doesn't justify a death threat. Yeah, just, you know, just the, uh, you know, people think, oh, he must be in the take because look at all these calls he missed. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, I I mean, it's going to happen with the, uh, with scandals. I mean, there's too much information that's being, you know, cloaked inside now with clubhouse attendants, trainers, support staff, PR, you know, what what have you. Say, hey, I'll, I'll call my buddy up give him a tip and uh, let him bet on it. Well, and, and, and it happened in college baseball. You, you probably are aware yeah. about what happened with the coach at the university of Alabama. Right. Right. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, <laughs> I think we got to be naive. I think it's not going to be happening in baseball. I'm not saying it happened yet, but very well could. We don't know. I mean, especially you know, when COVID was going on, every, you know, the trainers, uh, the people inside knew who was going to on the COVID list, who wasn't available, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, with the massive amount of money that uh, that uh, you know, points bet, uh, like I said, FanDuel, all of these different gambling sites, the the amount of money that's involved there, it, it's just, uh, I think, ripe for some sort of, of scandal to occur, occur. I know that you you deal with the major league uh, side of baseball primarily, but I also know that you, from time to time, cover uh, issues in guard to. Uh, exceptional minor league prospects, as well as uh, the draft um, and and college baseball being a bigger factor now than it it used to be. Do you see the the changes in in college sports with uh, name, image, and likeness money? Do you see that becoming a factor at any point in the uh, near future? Oh, I do, and uh, I think it's going to happen because particularly college football is so big in that. It's like if you're a good athlete and you get that kind of money through the NILs for college football, why in the world would you play baseball? Uh, you're going to go to the big money is. 
we were talking to Hunter Green uh, this past spring, and you know he was the number one prospect in the country, or amateur player in the country. He said the best scholarship or scholarship offer he got was uh, from UCLA. I think it was just a half a ride, maybe three quarters of a ride, but wasn't a full ride. And uh, so I, I think the other sports, particularly football and basketball, can really separate themselves from college baseball because of that money you're talking about. Well, and, and that I think is the fault more of the fact that baseball is limited to 11 and a half scholarships a year. So they have to divvy that up among 20 some guys. I, I think that it's, it's going to influence it more from the other side of things because college baseball, again, I, I can remember when I was at ASU, ASU had arguably the most talent of any baseball team in the country. They didn't necessarily win the NC2A championship every year for one reason or another, but they produced so many guys that went into pro ball that, that had great careers. And, and back then, um, you know, guys weren't allowed to, to, to get anything, but they were still on full scholarship. Now, what I see compared to back then, you, you would see at, at ASU baseball games back then, you'd see 250, 500 people, maybe. If it was a big game where it was ASU against U of A and they were playing at Phoenix Muni Stadium instead of playing on the on-campus uh, field, maybe you'd get uh, 1,000, 1,500, couple of thousand tops if it was a big, big game like that kind of rivalry. Now you see these colleges expanding their facilities to the point where they're you know, building stadiums that seat 5,000 people routinely and they're drawing 5,000 people routinely. I'm wondering if it isn't going to get to the point where if a kid is strictly baseball as opposed to a baseball football type of, of choice for a kid to make. And it's a, you know, a, a kid who's trying to choose between a scholarship to school A as opposed to school B. And one is going to come to him and say, well, you know, we've got this uh, tremendous collective that's putting up money for our football team. We're going to use some of that money for baseball and we're going to effectively buy up all the best baseball prospects in the country. Do you think there's yeah. a chance of that happening? Well, absolutely. I can see that. It's like, a, uh, you know, a lot of these good baseball players are good in other sports, too, and vice versa. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with the uh, um, the kid from uh, Oklahoma, uh, grew up in Texas. Uh, he plays quarterback now for the, for the uh, Arizona Cardinals. Remember the Oakland A's Oh, Murray, drafted? Kyler Murray. Yeah, Kyler Murray. Oakland A's drafted him with the 10th pick. Yep. And they say, yeah, we'll let you go to college one more year. And then, uh, you know, we sign the contract. Kid wins, kid wins the Heisman Trophy. See you later. Want to know a part of baseball? It's like, yeah, yeah, I can make yeah. a killing here in football right away. Uh, yeah, guaranteed money. Guaranteed money speaks volumes. There's no question about it. Well, Bob, I'll tell you, we could go on for another hour or so, but I know you're busy. I really appreciate it. I'd really love to do this again sometime, and I hope you'd be uh, amenable to coming back. Yeah, look forward to it. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Enjoyed it. Bob Nightingale, Major League Baseball writer for USA Today. If you want to reach Bob, he's at bnightingale on Twitter or usatoday.com. If you want to reach me with any guest suggestions or comments, I'm at David M. Sloan on Twitter or followthemoneyball.substack.com. Thanks for listening.